It's been a long time since we've done one of these, isn't it, it Liza? It is. Welcome to the Motorcycles and Misfits History Hole. It's not the Motorcycles and Misfits. It's Emma's History Hole, actually, darling. Yeah, we'll go with that. Hey, this is another one of the episodes that are special just for our Patreon subscribers. So, I want to say... Thank you very much for being a supporter. It means a lot to us. Well, you know, the the, the fact of the matter is, without our Patreon su- subscribers, we really couldn't be the misfits. You, you guys keep us alive. And this is our way of paying you back a little and just saying thank you. Exactly. So thank you very much. And as our gift back to you, we're going to get into uh, this history hole. And oh, this, this is, is such one, a good one. Oh, my I know. God. Well, you know, I think that this has been going under the radar. And it's something that's always been around, but we don't really have... A, I think a lot of people don't have a lot of respect for it. And I want to change it. And that's why I came to Emma and said, Emma, can you talk about Royal Enfield? And I'd love to. Because, you know, if you want to talk about British bikes... There's three names that always come up. There's always Triumph, of course. There's BSA and there's Norton. There's BSA Triumph Norton, BSA Triumph Norton. But there were a lot of other ones. And Royal Enfield, there's so much history there. And they made some fine bikes. It's not like they're being swept under the carpet. These were very, very fine motorcycles they made, and they've got such a rich history. So as always, we're just going to dip our toe into it um, and give you an idea of what these guys were were up to. It's a wonderful story. I can't wait. Well, so what we're going to do is I'm going to go back um, really to... We'll start with 1891, and actually that isn't the beginning. The beginning starts much earlier than that, but today we're just going to deal with the name of Royal Enfield. And Royal Enfield was formed in 1891 by R.W. Smith and Albert Eady. There were a couple of engineers. And like a lot of motorcycle manufacturers, they didn't start off making motorcycles. They started supplying parts for precision guns. Now remember, back in the late 19th century, Britain still very much had an empire. And if you've got an empire, you really need quite a strong army. And so gun manufacture was very prevalent and very profitable. So a lot of the engineering companies, this is how they got their start, making guns. BSA, which is in their day was the largest motorcycle manufacturer in the world, started off making guns. It's in the name. Birmingham Small Arms. They made rifles. Royal Enfield. Their slogan was made like a gun. Yeah. Precision manufacture. It has that on the logo. I never noticed. It has that on the logo. So this is where they got their start. They're making guns. And we can go back even further because they supplied a company called 
Royal Small Arms. And Royal Small Arms goes all the way back to 1816. So really, we're talking about a 200-year history here. Yeah, and something that I found amazing about Royal Small Arms, you you know, like so many of the companies like Birmingham Small Arms, I don't know how long they were in production. I think a lot of them pivoted and started making motorcycles. But Royal Small Arms, they didn't. They were in production right up until 1988. Well, forgive me if I'm wrong, and I apologize in advance for my um, English listeners if they can correct me on this. However, when I left England for the States in the mid-90s, you could still buy a brand new BSA rifle. Really? Yep. I think you still can. I, I, I may be wrong, but it's just fascinating because... But it's run as a different company to the motorcycle. I mean, we all know that BSA motorcycles ended in the early 70s, but you could still buy a brand spanking new BSA rifle right up until when I left and for all I know today. That's very cool. Yeah, so there we go. So what we're going to do is we're, con- we're going to concentrate on the automotive side of it. Um, turn of the century was a... The turn of the last century, so we're talking 1899-1900. It's a very, very exciting time. This is when a lot of the engineering firms were looking to turn their manufacturing facilities to automotive use, whether cars, motorcycles. Royal Enfield actually started with it with a couple of unsuccessful motorcycles, but the thing they were most successful with was the quadricycle. The quadricycle is basically a four-wheeled motorcycle. Um, They came up with a final design that they wanted to put in production in 1898. 1899, they actually put it into production. There's a personal connection here for me. It came with a De Dion engine. It came with a French engine. Now, De Dion actually made their own car in partnership with De Dion um, Bouton, which is B-O-U-T-O-N. Now, that is actually, my surname is an anglicized version of that, and it's actually part, a very distant part of my family. Oh, wow. That's that's really fascinating. So m- my family origins go back to the very, very early days of motoring. But that's a story for another so day. We're, we're talking about Royal Enfield. So we've been saying your name wrong the whole time. You're a Bouton. Well, if you want to put the French accent on it. <laughs> Yes, and I drink cafe, darling. So it was very, very successful in its time. 1904, the motorcycle started coming forward. It wasn't really until 1911 that the really successful bike started. It's the Model 160. The 160 was very, very interesting because it was a very, very early attempt at chain drive. Before then... A lot of motorcycles have been relying on a leather belt for traction. And uh, that's as woeful as it sounds, trust me. Chains back then, chains had always been recognized as being a superior method of transferring power. But having the strength to actually drive a motorcycle was problematic. So here's the 160. It's got a reliable chain drive on it. It was an extremely successful motorcycle for them. Really put them on the map with, with bikes. Um, we're going to move forward three years 
1914. Now, 1914, there's a lot of things happen in 1914. 1914, the last car rolled off the production line. So they decided from 1914 onwards, we're just going to concentrate on making motorcycles. Do you, do you know why? I think it's just the way that they saw the market moving forward for them. Were motorcycles on an upswing then? I think, I believe so. Yeah. Because England and America has always had a very different relationship with motorcycles. Um, America has regarded motorcycles to, to the most part as a leisure pursuit. Motorcycling in, in England, this was primary transportation. So if you catered for a slightly more middle-class clientele who could afford a car, that's fine. Motorcycles were traditionally very, very working class. And if you didn't earn enough for a motorcycle, well, you took the bus to work or walked. You earned a little more, you could have a motorcycle. You earned a little more, you could have a very small car, and so it goes on. Meanwhile, of course, the CEO's driving his Rolls-Royce. Well, that'd be very nice, wouldn't it? Um, so they saw motorcycling as their way forward so from 1914 onwards um it was motorcycles only the isle of man tt race has always been a huge part of motorcycling if you win at the isle of man tt it's a huge feather in your hand now unfortunately for royal enfield in the junior TT, which was for the smaller capacity um, races, 1914 was marred by a fatal crash. And back in those days, what they used to do was to mark the end of the race, they used to put a barrier across the track. Well, unfortunately, the rider who was leading on a small capacity Royal Enfield rode into that barrier and killed himself. So basically the win became null and void. Um Wait, if you die after the race, it's null and void? Well, apparently so. I mean, wow. Different rules back then. I knew that's a rough race. <laughs> yes, that is a rough race. Um, 1914 also marked the beginning of the First World War. Um, the First World War meant that if you were a manufacturing facility, you geared up for war production. Royal Enfield was no exception, and they churned out a huge amount of their six-horsepower model with a sidecar on it with a Lewis machine gun attached to it. They got sent out to the front lines. It was part of the war effort. And again, it was very, very successful. Now, a lot of the soldiers who rode Enfields during the First World War, guess what the first thing they did when they were demobbed and they went back home in 1918. They bought a Royal Enfield. Mm. Because, of course, the the motorcycle that was so trustworthy and reliable in military service, that's going to be your choice if you want a motorcycle when you get back into what we call Civvy Street back then. So Royal Enfield, they the 1930s were... An interesting time for bikes. It was a time of great austerity in England, and they had a range of single-cylinder bikes. Bear in mind, virtually 
all motorcycles on the road in the 1930s were singles. There was nothing really of any great interest there. These were get-to-work, these were commuter bikes. So I have a question for you. Yes. So you're saying these were commuter bikes because Royal Enfield now, I think the um, reputation is that it's an affordable every man's bike. Were these always in that niche or were they more higher-end bikes back then? They did one or two. I don't want to call them corporate ego trips because that's not fair. But a lot of the manufacturers did these fabulous top-of-the-line models that nobody could really hope to afford. Think of the H2R now. Mm -hmm. You know, this is an absolute top-of-the-line model, and it's something that you see in you, ooh and ah. Now, Royal Enfield made a couple of those, but these are not the the models that every man would buy. Right. It's not the bread and butter for the company. Right. But but it was, they did make some cutting edge stuff. Oh, absolutely. That's interesting. And 1931 was an interesting year because it marked the first year for a very interesting name for Royal Enfields. <gasps> what is that? The Bullet. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk a little more at length about the Bullet in a little while. I just put I it together. You- Royal the royal arms the yeah. rifle made the like bullet. a gun the ah, bullet now it makes sense there you go but it was the introduction for the name of the bullet um and we're going to talk about that shortly but i'm going to move along to the second world war now um 1939 and once again royal enfield was called upon to make military military production bikes which is what they did large single cylinder bikes but my favorite my favorite out of all of them was also the smallest which was the flying flea <laughs> um and the flying flea was exactly what it's described as it was a very small capacity bike it was designed to be dropped with paratroopers now look if you jump out of an airplane you've got two choices when you get on the ground you can walk you can steal some of the local transport if it's available however if you actually land with transport you can get around pretty quickly now a couple of the manufacturers so yeah i found a picture isn't it amazing of the flying flea and, and it came amazing, in its own little cage it came in a cage with wheels so it looks like you could drop it out of a plane and roll it through a field. Exactly, and that's what happened. And so my you, wheels are almost like hand truck wheels. It's their hand truck wheels. So I want you to think of the cage as like a hand truck. So you jump out of the plane. You, the the flying flea had come out of the plane. You, hopefully you'd land pretty close by. If you're on very rough terrain, you just wheel it in its little cage to where you could actually ride it. Small amount of assembly and off you'd go. That's brilliant. Isn't it fantastic? I want one. It's not the only bike that did that in the Second World War. Um, there was another one, a marvelous thing called the Excelsior Well Bike, which was even smaller. But it, it, it gave you the idea. So, um, war production, 1939 to 1945. Now, in order to understand the 1940s, to put some context into English manufacturers in the 1940s, England finished the Second World War pretty broke. 
There was no money for development. There was no money for new models. Really, we have to wait until 1949 for the 1950 model year before we see any real movement. And it was a big deal because in 1949, the twins started to come out. And they started off as the Meteor, which was a 500cc twin. Um, you said Meteor or Meteor? Meteor. Okay. It's like more, it has more meat. It is, it is Meteor. meteor. <laughs> exactly. Um, very, very handsome bike. Now, the Meteor lasted, I, th- I want to say, three or four years and very quickly became the Super Meteor, which was a larger capacity bike. That was 700cc. Now, the Meteor was 500 The Super Meteor was 700. And then the Constellations came after that. It was a continual development of the twin cylinder. It also had a fatal flaw. And the fatal flaw of all the Enfield twins is, unlike the other manufacturers who cast their twin cylinder bikes with a single cylinder casting, mm-hmm. the Enfields always had two side by side. Mm. Now, the Enfield theory was if you had a seizure or you had problems with one cylinder, you could take it off, just replace one side, and then you wouldn't have to rebore both. The reality, unfortunately, is that it was virtually impossible to get an oil tight seal That's what it between like the me. cylinders. But I like the theory. The theory was great. The practice, eh, not so great. The irony is, of course, with modern materials, we can actually make these Royal Enfield twins oil tight. Um, But at the time, it was virtually impossible. They got a rather cruel nickname in England, is... um, as known as Royal Oil Fields. <laughs> you could always tell the Enfield rider when he arrived at the pub because they were usually pretty oil-soaked from the knees down. <laughs> um, but the twins were very dashing machines. They were slightly larger capacity than their contemporaries. I mean, the Super Meteor and the Constellations were 700cc. Now, back then, the Triumphs and the BSA were 650s. So they had a little bit more meat to them. It didn't really translate to more performance, but it certainly gave you more bragging rights, and they are handsome bikes. I'm surprised, too, that they were that large displacement because I think of Royal Enfields now as smaller displacement bikes. Exactly. But they were, for a time, if you ignore the exotic stuff, like Aerial Square Fours, like Vincent's, if you just regard the mainstream run-of-the-mill bikes... Royal Enfield were the biggest bikes on the road for a while. It sounds like they were in the game with everybody else. Oh, absolutely. Unlike now where they've kind of forged a separate path. But back then, it sounds like they were cutting edge. They were were in the mix. Yes. They were absolutely in the mix. Their bikes were very distinctive looking. I'm not going to say they were pretty because they're not what you describe as pretty bikes. If you see a Triumph from the 1960s, it's pretty. It's an extremely, it's just a good looking bike. Enfields had a very purposeful look about them. It's a handsome bike. So, where was I? Constellations. Well, 
we're going to move forward to 1962. Um, 62 was an interesting year. Would you like to know why? Yeah, please tell me. It's the year I was born. Oh. <laughs> and it was really the year for the first of the interceptors. Now, the interceptor was a development of the Constellation, but it was very much an improved bike. The Interceptor was really designed for the American market because the American market has always been very important for British manufacturers. In the 1950s and 1960s, if you built a bike that America liked, you did quite well. Now, the Constellations and the Meteors, although they sold in America, they didn't sell well. And I'm looking at an Interceptor now. I mean, it followed oh, the trend of the, this looks like the influence of the Japanese bikes. Absolutely. It's yes. a crushingly handsome bike. Yes. But what the Interceptor, I should point out, Liza's looking at a last year Mark III Interceptor which was an amazing-looking bike. Now, that goes to the last year of production, but the earlier interceptors from 62, 63 were really a lot more conventional, but they did develop as they went. Um, very, very good bikes. Once again, the oil leaks were a problem, but they performed well. They were solidly reliable. They were made extremely well. Unfortunately, by the mid-60s, they were struggling. They got absorbed into the Norton Villiers group. And as the market started to shrink in the 1960s, the different manufacturers were having problems actually keeping themselves afloat as individual entities. So they became absorbed into larger corporates. The problem with that is that now decisions are being made by corporate executives and not necessarily enthusiasts and it really was when you get absorbed into a larger corporation we've seen it recently with Pontiac with Oldsmobile being absorbed into General Motors I know they've always been there but they were just pushed aside with a with a stroke of a pen when you bring the bean counters in exactly. that's what happens and so to cut a long story short um, Royal Enfield had two manufacturing plants the first manufacturing plant was in Redditch which was just outside Birmingham, like a lot of the manufacturers, my hometown, that closed down in 67. The final factory, which was based in Bradford-upon-Avon, closed in 1970. Final bike that rolled off the production line was an Interceptor. And by then, the saddest irony is they'd got all the bugs out, they'd sorted the oil leaking problem, there was extremely handsome bikes. They performed extremely well. They could stand on their own, even against the contemporary Japanese bikes. And that was it. Yeah, looking at the earlier 60s interceptors, it looked very British. And as I said, the later 70s looked very Japanese. It looked like a CB550. It's Good looking, solid bike. I would ride one today. Right. And so that was it for Royal Enfield. But hang on. There's more. It's not quite the end. So, um, we need to go back to 1955. Yes. So in 1955, the Indian government approached Britain and said, 
we're looking to start production of our own motorcycle based under the Royal Enfield name. And India had always had a, been a very healthy market for Royal Enfields as export, but they wanted to set up their own manufacturing facility. And basically, to cut a long story short, Royal Enfield set up production of the 50 bullet in India in 1955 using then contemporary models. Now, you remember, the bullet name had been around since 1931, but this was based on a bike that had come in in the late 40s. It was designed in 48. The production was finalized in 49. It had already been in production for five years. Uh, five years in England, and had proven itself to be a very, very tough, simple bike. So I have a question. Yes. Were the parts interchangeable on the British and the Indian? Not quite. If you look at the larger parts, the engine casings, the um, wheel castings for the hubs, those started off as being completely interchangeable because the tooling came directly from Redditch in England. As the years went by, India came up with its own tooling, with its own way of manufacturing. And everything that was actually made on site, like the frame, there were subtle differences. They're very similar. And you would find if you took a British Royal Enfield bullet and an Indian Royal Enfield bullet from, say, the early 60s, some parts would be interchangeable some parts would not, but it'd be a very similar-looking bike. Oh, so maybe something like the turn signals are different, but the tappets might be the same? Yeah, you get the idea. Okay, yeah. You know, um, but it's basically based on the same design. Now, you've got to remember as well that the Indian market was very, very different to, to England. The actual, the way the motorcycle was used... India is an extremely modern country now, and the infrastructure is very, very good. However, back in the 50s, it wasn't quite as developed. So what they needed was a very, very robust motorcycle that could really hold itself together in, in fairly poor conditions and be maintained with the minimum of tools. And it really fit the bill. So here we are, that bike stayed in production virtually unchanged right up until the mid-2000s. Absolutely unchanged. Which means the bullet is significant. And this is something I found very interesting. The bullet is an extremely significant bike. Now, recently they have started making changes to it. And when I say recently, I mean in the last 10 years. Fuel injection, unit construction... Um, really just modernize the whole thing. But if you look at a 2018 bullet and look at the original production 1955 bullet, you can't deny the lineage of it. It's amazing. It really is an, an amazing motorcycle. So I got an interesting number. Yes. So we're, we're up to Indian Royal Enfield, the company we, we now know. Take a guess how many units they they make. So this is in uh, 2016. How many units do you think they made? 
Up until 2016? No, um, I think this is how many they made in 2016. Oh, fire me with that number. I would love to hear it. I'm going to have to confirm this, but I'm seeing production output in 2016, 666,000. Isn't that amazing? Yes. But you see, it is and it isn't. In India, the Enfield is still very much an aspirational bike. However, it's an aspirational bike in a country that uses motorcycles as everyday transportation. Now, a lot of our Patreon subscribers are going to throw their hands up in horror and say, well, I use my bike as everyday transportation. But we're still a very small member of of society by doing that. Majority of people buy new or used cars. If you see any kind of footage from India, if you visit India, you realize just how many people ride motorcycles in that country. It's amazing. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Got another interesting fact. Far away. So Royal Enfield, it currently sells motorcycles in more than 50 countries. Yes. And it surpassed Harley-Davidson in global sales in 2015. And that doesn't surprise me either. Yeah. Because of the market it's in. And what you've got to remember is most of those sales are in the domestic market. Now, if if you're a buyer, because we know that some of the smaller capacity Harley-Davidson's are made in India as well. Now, Harley-Davidson's got the name, but it hasn't got the reputation in India. Royal Enfield's got that reputation as being the robust bike, the bulletproof bike. It's called a bullet, and it's bulletproof. I love them. That's pretty cool. So there we are. I mean, we've pretty much brought you up to date. Now, remember, all we ever intend to do with these history holds is just give you a little taste. Do some research. It's an amazing story. It's a wonderful story. Before we go... I just want to talk about briefly, just because it's so interesting, about a period of time from 1955 to 1959 for America. And what happened is Indian, the company Indian, was basically on its back. Production of the Indian motorcycle had stopped in 1954 but the name was still out there, and it had been bought by a large conglomerate called the Brockhaus Corporation. And Brockhaus wanted to reintroduce the name Indian, even though they didn't make any motorcycles. They built one prototype of an Indian chief with a Vincent Black Shadow engine. That didn't really get off the ground. But what they did was they took twin-cylinder Royal Enfields, painted them red, put the Indian logo on the tank and sold them to the American public. It was okay. That's cheating. And the American public pretty much said, hey, this is cheating. So it was short-lived. But to gloss over that fact wouldn't really be fair. But basically, in 1960, they'd, they'd said enough. And so the last motorcycle for a long, long time to wear the Indian logo on the gas tank actually... Rolled off the line in England. Well, I think it's pretty cool, the long lineage that they have and how it's been a, a name that has survived. And um, I'm curious to see how the new models that they're rolling out, 
like the Himalayan, how they are going to hold up and how, if they're going to be just a further part of the success of this company. And, you know, the exciting one for me is the Interceptor. Because twin-cylinder Enfields, there's, there's always been something very special about a twin-cylinder oil Enfield. And I've been waiting. I've been waiting for a long time. So I'm thrilled. Do you think we'll ever see an electric Royal Enfield? I think we eventually we're going to see an electric everything. Yeah, I guess so. But I, I love, though, that they are a traditional classical machine. And that's something I've loved about them that they looked like an old bike. Oh, they look the part. And technically they are. It It's the real deal. I mean, it's not a pretend old bike. It's not a copy of an old bike. It is an old bike. So in, in closing, let me just ask you this. If somebody wanted to buy a Royal Enfield, would you tell them to buy a British-made older bike? A Indian bike from maybe the last 30 years? Or a brand new modern Enfield released in North America? I'd go for the brand new one. Okay. and the re Because I know how hard they've been working on quality control. And Enfield themselves, and when I say Enfield, I mean Enfield India, would themselves admit that quality control has been choppy in the past, but they have made so many inroads into making these things good quality. I would, I would go right out. If you've got a dealer in your area, try one, buy one. There you go. They are the new classics. They are indeed. Awesome. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this Emma's History Hole. We keep finding more and more fascinating things to share, but this is why we save them for our Patreon subscribers. So once again, thank you very much for subscribing, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope so too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.